With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers to Ballard Radio. My name is Matt West, and tonight I'm joined by the biggest, the fattest, the drunkest of them all, our good pal BFD. How are you doing tonight, man? Man, well, so uh, I'm having all sorts of computer problems here, and so I'm hoping the show goes okay, but I'm kind of in, a, in an angry mood, and so we'll see how that plays out for the, for the remainder of the show, because we might be pretty rampagey. Yeah, we need it. I mean, that big old bloody moon was out there last night, and I'm feeling it today. It's not the caffeine, like the 400 milligrams of caffeine I've had, and uh, that at all. It's that damn, that damn big bloody moon, the the blood orgy, kill them all, wolf, wolf, a uh, double overtime mood is just drove me crazy. I love that name. I love the name of today's show. That's it's awesome. It's outstanding. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite things I've done, especially the picture of Andy Reid with it. Yeah. And I don't. I don't. I. I wonder what Tim is gonna think whenever he sees it. I don't know if he saw it yet or not. Uh, the mods are asleep, so post whatever you want. And, uh, and so I hope it stays there forever. <laughs> I really do. Me too. Me too. For sure. Yeah, because he's got that red bump, like right right there. Yeah. Too. And his breath and everything, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's awesome. Yeah, and speaking of the moon, I remember, I think it was like 2012, because I, I was in school and I was taking astronomy, and they were telling us about the lunar eclipse. And so I saw the, the blood moon once before, then we walked outside like 1230 and it was all red and it was pretty cool. And so I've seen it once before. And this one, I kind of liked a little bit more because I was driving as it was happening. So I kept like cranking my head out the window, trying to crash my car at eight miles per hour. And I would just see it like slowly, you know, cover a little bit more, a little bit more as uh, the moon was in the penumbra of the Earth's shadow. Uh, and so it was neat. And then, you know, when it was finally out there at ever, that's a cool thing. I like I like the people that actually took like far up pictures of it too. But yeah, I wish the moon was red all the time and make life a lot more interesting. I feel like we'd be a much more uh, creative population, you know. I, I can't disagree with with the obvious, Matt. Yeah, that that big white moon, boring. Make it red. Let's graffiti it. That's what <laughs> I'm gonna send a letter to to John Cornyn, whoever my representative is, and say, hey, let's paint the moon red. Let's just pour blood all over and stain it. You know, make it look like Mars. Yeah, or we can, you know, uh, never mind. I can't, I'm not going to be able to grab that reference. But there's a song by uh, uh, Kevin DeGord's song when he went solo. I'm blowing this. Take it away. No idea. No idea. And we also, we can fake the Mars landing by painting the moon red as well, too. And uh, and really, really stick it to, you know, the Russians. And I don't know, I guess there's a Cold War anywhere for, any more for it to matter, but maybe it's like a, an intellectual Cold War that we're currently living in, and the Cold War is ourselves and our consciousness that we fight through every day. 
But anyways, let's start off tonight's show by talking about the big Houston Texans news. The thing that happened this weekend, which happened, I think, Friday night, and then they announced on Saturday morning, was that the Houston Texans re-signed Sontrell Henderson to a contract that can be worth up to $4.5 million. If you forgot, Sontrell Henderson used to play right tackle for the Buffalo Bills. He had not played there since 2015. He wasn't even very good in 2015. And he started the Patriots game, played about half, and they broke his ankle. Then Texas moved Julian Davenport to right tackle, put Martinez Rankin in left tackle. The tackle situation was a mess until they finally went back to Davenport left tackle. And uh, Kendall Lamb went from worst offensive tackle I've ever seen to slightly incompetent. And they started chip, and things were okay. They could be better, like all things. But uh, anyway, so the Henderson signing, good, bad, don't care. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? I am higher on Henderson than you are. I mean, marginally, I think he could be a serviceable tackle for us. And, you know, you made the comment, well, he was, you know, Kendall Lamb was better than Henderson was this past, you know, as a bill. You know, I'm not sure if I can argue that point. But, you know, he was pretty coveted coming out of college, and he does have some skills. He just has some weaknesses too. And and if he spent this offseason learning the Texans' <coughs> scheme, <laughs> and having to learn, you know, what to do in it. And then it's all the better. So I see it as, look, we have plenty of cap space to spare. He's at worst. I think he is, he is not a bad swing tackle. He's not, you know, you don't want him starting any games, but, or necessarily, but as a swing tackle, I mean, he's he Chris Clark like, and I would say yes. So I don't see that he's bad. I'm okay. Yeah. With well, the weird thing about Henderson too is like, he's enormous and like he kick slides well, but he has zero punch at all. Like, I've never seen a man so big as him and have, like, such little football strength. Uh, it's really just, like, kind of depressing and super strange to watch. Uh, he's, like, there's such a account, there's such a difference between what he looks like and what he actually plays like. And so, like, I'm fine with the signing. I don't hate it. I just don't think you can really expect anything from Henderson all whatsoever. Like, last offseason, whenever he was signed and everybody was expecting Henderson to be good because whenever your football team signs a, signs a player – it automatically makes him a good football player, and that's just how it works. But I, I thought he was going to be a disaster this year. We never had the chance to really find out. And uh, But, yeah, like you're saying, I'm fine with him being resigned here because at least he knows the offense. The lack of a continuity on the offensive line has hurt it since Brandon Brooks and Ben Jones left. And so even if it's a guy who is in the film room, is in the weight room, knows the, the guys around him, knows the staff some, like even that little bit of continuity – uh, means something and is better than you know bringing in I don't know Austin Howard or something on one year deal or something like that like a, a player maybe a little bit better but doesn't have the acumen and, and the knowledge of the system like Henderson does so yeah I'm fine with it and you know it's whatever I hope he doesn't play very much at all but and and even then like if he does play at least it means he came out of camp as being the best tackle went through some sort of competition instead of just kind of hand the job to you so Regardless, I'm okay with it. I feel better about him re-signing here than I did with the Texans signing him last year. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing um, to add to that. Yeah, I still wish they signed Cameron Fleming last year, though, instead. He's good. He had a good, he had a good game against Dallas. And, yeah, I wrote, that, I wrote that stupid film room on it, too. I was like, hey, this guy's a lot better. They should get this guy instead. And here we are. We have Sancho Henderson. And Fleming, I wonder if he's going to start next year, too, because he's going to be a free agent again as well. Yeah, and Cameron Fleming is a free agent again this year. So here we go. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, let's sign him at right tackle too as well. I'd be fine with that. Well, I still want to see Rankin try to play right tackle. But let's have a big battle 
Like I want, I want it to be like a, like a one versus 16 free for all, like Halo 2 sort of like land party battle for you know, every offensive line uh, spot this offseason. Yeah. The, the other bit of Houston Texans news is that Deshaun Watson is named to his first Pro Bowl to replace Tom Brady, who he will eventually replace as the greatest quarterback of all time one day. And the Texans now have six Pro Bowl selections. Five, if you don't include DeAndre Hopkins, will be sitting out of this game after having an ankle sprain and an AC sprain. So, BFD, are you going to watch the Pro Bowl at all this year? I never watched the Pro Bowl. It's a waste of my time. Ever since, seriously, ever since Robert Smith, I don't even remember the year, mid-90s, but he was a running back for New England. Ever since he tore his ACL doing something stupid, uh, at, I think it was like a skills competition. They, they were playing volleyball on a beach or something crazy. <laughs> I just haven't been interested in it. It's a boring game anyway, and you don't want these guys to be hurt. And I think that really if you're watching it, if you're a fan of football, the last thing you want to do is see a dude get hurt and miss a season because of it. So I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a museum or something, like a showcase, and it's purely for the fans. Uh, I mean, of all the sports that have uh, all-star games, which they all do, it's the one that's least like the actual sport itself. And so by default, it makes it a bad game. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's terrible. It shouldn't. I, I would like to see them do something really different than what they do. I mean, if they're going to get these guys out there, let's maybe let them play slow pitch softball or something. Yeah. And they're kind of doing that. They're playing dodgeball and they're doing tug of war and, you know, racing or whatever. But I don't know. I think like I'm kind of like anti any sort of big showcase in the league because the league is is kind of gross as it is. Like I went to that Super Bowl media day, media day thing and saw everything on the screen like in my immediate reality. It's like yeah, like all sports are just kind of like gross and bad. You can just see the business of it. Whereas like whenever you consume the game on your own, like there's a there's a wonder to it, and then you see up up close and stuff. You're like yeah, I don't want to be this close to it at all. I like seeing it from my my mother's bedroom a lot more. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not going to watch the Pro Bowl. The only thing I've ever liked about the Pro Bowl was, like, in the 90s when I was a child. And I liked how every single player wore the helmet from its own team. So I liked the blue jerseys with all the different colored helmets. And I love that part. And they got rid of it for a bit, but now it's back. And so I may, like, watch 15 seconds of it just so I can see all the different helmets again. But uh, that's more childlike wonder than actually caring about the game and all whatsoever. <laughs> I think it's very well the childlike wonder and then then you grow to be 12 and it sucks yeah but I think even like at 12 because even the NBA all-star game used to do that too they all wore their own jerseys like if you play NBA Live 02 that's what the all-star game's like in that game and I still enjoy yeah. that part of it also but yeah I, I'm not I'm not gonna watch it but if you listen to the show make sure to subscribe because this Friday or this Thursday whenever we post it uh, we'll do uh, me and my good friend Taylor. We'll do a, a Pro Bowl pick from sort of thing, which I think is just going to be like a, a backyard football draft where uh, we can each build the team. And it's just going to be me talking about Josh Allen for at least, you know, for, as long as I have the microphone, I'm talking about Josh Allen. And so I'm excited to do that later this week, which is a, which is a teaser for this week's show. So make sure you hit that subscribe button while you're here. Oh my God. You're man crushing. We're going to have to get a restraining order on you. <laughs> well, I, the one thing that really kind of bummed me out was week 17. I didn't get a chance to write the 10 things I liked article. And I was going to make one of the 10 things just like all lowercase, don't write about Josh Allen like 10 times in a row. And then just write about Josh Allen because he, he did this thing where he almost got sacked in the pocket and then he dove to his knees, let the rush go past him, got back up, then ran for a first down. 
he almost broke a quarterback sneak for a touchdown as well, too. And like, I've never seen him do the things he, do, he does before, you know? Just because he's a tight end playing quarterback. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting because he could do exactly what Lamar Jackson could do in that offense, but the Bills aren't doing that with him. Yeah. They're letting him like actually try to be a real quarterback right from the get-go step, putting in some really safe system. So it's going to be interesting to see how the two turn out, where you have one guy who's learning right now uh, how hard the position is and, and that sort of thing, compared to being brought on slowly. So, yeah, it's going it's to be interesting to see how the two guys turn out. But, yeah, I enjoy watching both of them a lot, though. Yeah, and I, I just love that we're going to have such an uh, upfront comparison for two quarterbacks, one being baby, one being shown the system. I'm just really fascinated five years from now how that's going to look. Yeah, it's like the scientific method seen actually in football. And one of the problems that you know, we have is people who you know watch the game and analyze the game and all that is that there's not really – there's so much context involved with everything that rarely do you get an idea where you can see the same idea or – See that see two different ideas in like the same sort of environment, and the Bills Ravens is probably as close as you can get. But two quarterbacks who currently right now have about the same similar skill set. I do think Jackson's a more accurate passer, but it's not saying a whole lot uh, at the moment. So, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun ten years from now when it, wherever you see what happens to these two guys. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I guess that's all the news we have. So let's get on with it. Let's do what we came here to do. Let's talk about actual real football. It still exists. You know, who, said, who says love is dead? And so the Rams beat the Saints 26-23 in overtime. And I went back and watched this game this morning because I was off work today. And I couldn't remember anything about this game as well either. I forgot about just about all of it. The only thing I could really think of was the call. The call that wasn't even a call, though. It really – and it was a call that wasn't a call is what it was. And so to set it up real quick, and this may be a little bit of a monologue, I like the type of thing Shakespeare used to write. But to set it up, Drew Brees finally completed a pass downfield. It hung in the air for what, for what felt like forever. You know, where does all that time go? And Ted Ginn jumped up and came down with it and make a great play, which put the Saints in field goal range with a game tied 23-23. The Saints threw a quick, awful slant to Michael Thomas to scrape across the grass. That was first and ten. On second 10, they ran a quick toss the short side of the field to Alvin Kamara, and he didn't gain a yard at all. Then it was third and 10, they had Tommy Lewis in the backfield with Nikel Roby Coleman in man coverage. And with Lewis in the backfield, you know, Coleman was lined up to about the center, the middle of the field as well, too. And so Tommy Lewis went, Allen ran a swing pass. Coleman had come all the way across the formation to the sideline in order to cover him. Breeze did what he did all game. He threw a perfect, you know, pass, a perfect touch, put the ball in the exact spot for Lewis. Coleman running over to defend the pass, doesn't look for it, uh, has his back turned, is chasing, leaps, hits Lewis not only before the ball arrives, but also hiding him, him in the helmet as well, too. Uh, two penalties. There was two referees in the area, both watching the play, both look at each other, wave their arms incomplete. Uh, no penalty, nothing at all. The Saints kicked a field goal up 23-20. The Rams have one timeout, 145 left after this, and then tied the game up. So, BFD, after watching this play and dreaming about this play, can you think of any sane reason why the refs didn't throw a flag here? Well, first, let me, let me correct you by my opinion, of course, that there were actually three penalties on that play. <laughs> three penalties? Three. What's the third one? The, the third one was face guarding. I mean, he never turned around. So, I, yeah, I kind of add that, you know, that's like not only was it PI, but it was also face guarding. So, I mean, because he led with his helmet into the other dude's face. And this, yeah, yeah. And how much do you love Tommy Lee Lewis? I mean, isn't he just one of your favorite guys to watch? I don't Maybe it's just me. 
I have no opinion on him at all. Oh, he's fun. He's like he's like five two. He's like he and Tim are like the same height. <laughs> so uh yeah i kind of was like you had three three chances to get this call right guys and i think they were so shocked i mean even coleman's shocked even coleman's body language up the play is oh my god i so screwed that up and he's like looking around going nothing <laughs> yeah i know and then yeah his like arms are like at his side like he's a, a t-rex or something uh-huh. and then he looks around there's nothing then he goes and like claps hands his defenders and walks up the sideline and even he knew it, and he said so after the game, and everybody knows it. And it, it was unbelievable. I, I still can't get over it. I don't think I ever will. Yes. Um, so, I, I know, there, that was inexcusable to me. I mean, I, I just don't – I don't know how that slipped through. The only thing I can think of is they were so shocked because it was so blatant. They were like, what? Really? Did that – no, that didn't just happen. That was too stupid to happen. And no flag. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's no reason for it unless the fix was in or something along those lines. The, or, you know, they just both kind of, at the same time, they, uh, their, their consciousness travel collectively, just not care, and took their eyes off the play. And I, I mean, there's really no reason all for it. And then Lee hasn't even come out and say anything entirely yet about why and what happened there. And I'm going to be interested to see if they actually come out and say anything because the league doesn't really do that. They just ignore it, sleep underneath the rug, and don't think about it. And even watching the condensed game today, too, they cut the game where they showed zero replay of that play. And so typically if it's a close call and there's a fumble or a turnover or a challenge, they'll play the same play, you know, two times in a row on the condensed version. Even that, nope, right to the field goal. Don't even talk or think about it again. Come Mike Ferreras, he's explaining it too. But, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of a worse no call uh, ever. Can you think of anything? Can you think of a no call as bad as this one was? With all that, all those years of knowledge. It was up there with Don Dankinger in the 1985s. World Series. I mean, this is oh, one yeah, of the all-time yeah. great gaffes. Yeah, one of the all-time great referee umpiring gas gas of all time. And this one, I, I'm not going to say it costed the Saints the game because ultimately, yes, this play sucked, but the Saints had plenty of opportunities to win this game. So I don't think I'm not going to say it costed them the game, but it certainly didn't help. Yeah, for sure. And so, and, and so, also like one of the things I wanted to bring up to you real fast is that. Like, whenever you watch the games and you complain about the referees, you know, that's a you problem. The referee doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your favorite team. Like, there's no, like, dark arts against you or, or you know, the things that you care about whatsoever. It's a hard job. The game is really fast. It's all subjective. Uh, it's very difficult to make these calls and make decisions on place like this, especially in a, in a game where they want to have the players play. They don't want to have the refs decide a game at all. And it's the NFC Championship game. I think they kind of factored into it as well, too. But, like, and the Saints did, you know, they lost this game. They, this was the, probably the monumental reason why, if you kind of want to focus, the, you know, one play specifically, I guess. But, I mean, they still ended up losing this game. It's so, like, overall, like, if you're complaining about the referees, you're watching the sports the wrong way. Uh, it's better just to enjoy it and then accept the fact that referees are very evil until, you know, cyborgs take over and then, uh, we're all in cages, and they're the ones playing the games and, and having their own rules, and everything's perfect and exact. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, everything's maddenized by the, the bots. Mm-hmm. No, but yep. I, so, so I'm going to segue. I'm going to skip a little bit here and, and because I want to talk about, and you made, so during the, during the broadcast, Big Matt was freaking Nostradamus, like at one point where he said uh, that 
Drew Brees looked old and he could not throw the ball. I think the reason the Saints lost is because Drew Brees couldn't throw the ball with any authority at all. Yeah, that, that was one of their issues. And so I looked up the numbers too because even against the Eagles as well, and if you think you know, back two weeks ago, all, oh, oh, all that long time ago, uh, Brees threw off the game on third down by throwing a deep pass downfield. He underthrew it. Mag still back and was able to intercept that pass. Later in the game, he had Taysom Hill wide open on a seam route, underthrew that one, allowed. I guess I get then the first guy was LeCon, the second guy was Max. One of those guys needed a haircut. I can't tell him apart. But uh, the second guy with the long hair, he was able to tip that pass because Drew Brees underthrew it. And for the last two weeks or so, you know, in this postseason, Brees has really like looked noodly. Like he looked, you know, kind of Peyton Manning ish with his ability to throw the ball downfield. All, all the short stuff, he had great touch and a little bit of zip and accuracy. The downfield team was bad. And so I looked up the numbers. And so on passes that traveled large, uh, farther than 15 yards, larger than 15 yards, that uh, sounds very strange and very dumb. He was 5 on 12 on deep pass attempts for 148 yards, 12.3 yards in attempt, one interception, zero touchdowns. Against the Rams, he threw four downfield passes. Only one was complete. One was that weird third and 15 where he threw it to the left of the receiver. It probably should have been intercepted, but wasn't. It ended up bouncing for incompletion. And then the one completion, of course, was to tag in this game. Uh, so like, overall, like, what did you think of Breeze's postseason? Are you worried about him for the future? Muted myself. Um, so I don't remember even, and this is totally recency bias probably, and I get it, but Drew Brees under through everything. He... He uh, had no zip. I even think don't think in the intermediate throws he had any zip on the ball whatsoever. What threw me off is Drew Brees is we have to put it in context. Drew Brees is literally the most accurate quarterback in NFL history. This year he set he broke a record for the most highest completion rate that he previously held. Okay, this is the most accurate guy thrower in the NFL and that it ever has been. And he couldn't hit the box. That, that, uh, that leaderboard super funny, too, because it's Drew Brees, Drew Brees, Drew Brees, Sam yeah. Radford, Drew Brees, Drew Brees, Drew Brees. I think that job is <laughs> right there, too. <laughs> no, I, I know Shab's not on it because the football is different, but Bradford, that one really weird year, we had the 72% completion percentage. Okay, I'm looking this up because I got I to gotta look this one because Matt Shab's way up there on one of them. Anyway, um, damn it. Damn it, I keep going down the list. Where is he? Ah, I hate. I don't think there's a way Shab had like a, a grand seven percent completion percentage though. Sixty-seven point nine percent tied for forty-third in a season. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's oh Kenny Anderson eighty-two. That he was. I was. I watched that season. Kenny Anderson. He was amazed balls. So anyway, but he couldn't. He not only he couldn't throw anything accurately. Like he couldn't even throw screens accurately. It was crazy. He, I don't know if I've ever seen a quarterback with that noodly arm, even including Peyton Manning. Yeah, I mean, like, Manning was weird just because he was just smart. But, and then he could throw, like, those fade routes every once in a while where he was able to drop it right in the bucket in that last year. And he did that, you know, twice in that game where they beat New England where he found Owen Daniels, which is forever is going to be funny. And But, yeah, I, you know, Breeze overall was just – he looked really bad. You have to remember this is a guy who's 40 years old. He threw over you know, 400 pass attempts this year. And it looks like it, it really kind of finally caught up to him. 
So in short passes in the postseason, he was 49 for 62, 402 yards and four touchdowns. Kamar and Michael Thomas combined for 28 catches on 34 attempts for 254 yards. And so the Saints passing offense morphed entirely into throwing the ball to Kamar and Thomas, and that was entirely it. And so in this game, Kamar was awesome. He was able to beat Corey Littleton a ton in the swing passes and seam routes. Or not seam routes, but swing passes and kind of wheel routes. Uh, he only had there's only one pass that he didn't catch in this game. Michael Thomas only had uh, four catches in this one for you know, 32 yards or so, and you know, Akeem Saloon was able to take him away from this game you know, pretty well. But yeah, like overall, like the the Saints offense went from this like exotic menagerie with all these different skill players who knew a lot of different things, a lot of creative things, and uh, with Brees throwing the ball downfield here and there to just being stuck in a closet where they couldn't escape out of, and they only scored 23 points because of it against a Ram defense that was. You're pretty mediocre for the majority of the season. Yeah, so that that to me, I just that's why for me, I'm going to go back to it. That's why the Saints lost is because Drew Brees could not make the throws. He was 26 for 40, and that wasn't because of the defense, Matt. That was because he couldn't hit anything. Yeah, I, I think the worst throw he made was probably that third and 15, though, where he had, I think it was Thomas uh, running a big dig in the center of the field, and he's open, and he's going to complete that pass, but he, like, bounces it to the left and behind, and it was almost intercepted as a result, and that was a, a, a throw I've seen him make, you know, probably 100 times or so, and I haven't watched the Saints play every week, and yeah, it was weird, and I, and I we'll, we'll talk about Tom Brady as well, too, uh, kind of say the thought about, like, the difference between whenever you have an older quarterback and how you use him throughout the year. Because Brady has just turned into a werewolf out of nowhere, and now the postseason is hit, with it being a metaphorical, you know, full moon in this case. And so going back to the end of this game, so if the Saints did kick a field goal in that situation after a defensive pass interference penalty, the Rams only had one timeout, and they would have got the ball probably about uh, 25 seconds or so and zero timeouts after the Saints would be able to run two plays as long as they didn't throw any completion kick a field goal. And they've been up 26-23. The Rams have zero timeouts, probably the ball at their own 25-yard line. And pro football reference gives them a 10% chance to win at that point. And, uh, and Greg Z, you know, he made a 57-yard field goal. That would have been good from 70. So maybe in this other reality, uh, Jared Goff throws, you know, two big passes. Greg Z kicks a field goal, goes in overtime anyways. But we didn't get an answer in that reality. We were, we were stuck in this one. So even after that call, do you, do you even care that the Rams are in the Super Bowl? Are you looking forward to the Super Bowl after this game? I am because I felt like these were two very well-matched teams. They both have their weaknesses. They both have strengths, but neither one of them is really a deal killer uh, as far as the weaknesses. Um, I am 100% okay that the Rams are playing this game. That Again, I'm going to go back to – I don't – know what you would expect realistically from Drew Brees as your quarterback going up against the Patriots on in two weeks because the dude has no arm. They're going to eat him alive, and he cannot throw on the run either. So I just I think just for the sake of it's going to be a better game because the Rams are in it than the Saints. Yeah, I, I, could, I can see that. Um, I mean, I would have rather – I still feel like the Saints overall are probably a better team. Uh, they beat them earlier this year like when Brees was rocking. They were uh, kind of unbeatable. He only lost two games this season. He kind of wore down as, after the Cowboys game on. It seemed like he was a little bit different and off. But, I mean, I still think the Saints, if they if they call the, if they make that call, they win this game, and they should be the team that probably should be the Super Bowl. But even then, like that being said, as you mentioned earlier, Breeze is bad. But they also had the entire overtime to win this game. 
They got the ball back to start off OT. Uh, Ramchek was being a spin move by Dante Fowler on, uh, I believe it was second and 10. And Brees threw in a pie instead of taking the sack. And Joe Joss was able to pick off the pass. And also what really kind of upset me about that play was the ball gets to Michael Thomas, stops looking for the ball, runs into Johnson, cr- uh, you know, cradles to the ref and you know, screams looking for a defensive pass interference penalty, which there is after the ball's been tipped to the line of scrimmage, rather than going up there and trying to make a play on the ball and, uh, and attack it up high. And this is also a guy who, after every catch he makes, he flexes his biceps. There's a time to be strong, Michael Thomas, when the ball's in the air and you're trying to win an NFC t- a championship game. Instead, you're, you're yelling to the referee about a pass interference penalty. And then, of course, Johnson picks that pass off. They get a field goal range, and, you know, Greg Z makes the field goal. And so, like, I even it's, – it's, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Like, I think the Saints should have won this game, but also at the same time they blew this game. They had chances to win it throughout. They didn't play very well. I, I feel like neither team played very well. And even though the game was close and weird things happened over time, I still kind of felt like this was an underwhelming game of yeah, and I'll agree with that sentiment. I was expecting a lot more, I guess. Um, there were some exciting parts, but the, neither offense looked very good, which has kind of made it what it did, I think. You know, golf was off and on all game. Uh, Drew Brees looked terrible, and I think, you know, by my count, he should have had two more interceptions. You talked about one, and there's another one that was behind, and the guy played the ball. Play, it was kind of more playing for the knockdown. I can't remember who it was now. Was it, Mark, it wasn't Marcus Peters. I think it was Coleman, where he kind of was playing more on just knocking the ball down rather than intercepting it. If he would have gone for the interception, he would have gotten it. Yeah, I think what the player talking about, and that was one where it's third and ten, and that, but that was an egregious defensive holding penalty. Like he was all the way wrapped around the receiver, and they should have called it. And they bring my prayer on. It's like, yeah, I don't know how they missed that one. Also, and then also Coleman was the same guy too, who I got beat by Michael Thomas with a fade, was running with his back to the ball somehow got there in the mount, somehow like got there right when the ball landed and hit him in the back of the helmet so there wasn't a penalty on it. But um, yeah, like he, he was all around the vicinity. Like that last penalty that wasn't called, it was boiling, it was lurking uh, in the crevices of the skull the entire time. <laughs> I like the way you put that. <laughs> so, so also, you know, you mentioned the offenses. The Rams had the best offense by, or the best rushing offense by DVOA this year. And in this game, Todd Curley, uh, the lead of the Rams running attack, he dropped two passes. One would have been a crucial first down conversion on an angle route. The other led to an interception. He had four carries for 10 yards and it's touchdown. The Rams only had 77 yards on 26 carries. Um, why did they struggle so much as much as they did on the ground this game? The interior line play of the Saints is really outstanding. I mean, I just I don't think it's a whole lot more than that. I, I and I thought, and the reason I picked the Rams to win the game is I didn't think they were going to be able to hold up. But the uh, David Onyemata had an outstanding game, just being a clogger. But I think the guy really, well, Cameron Jordan, of course, had a great. Demario Davis had nine solo tackles, five assists, and fourteen total tackles on the game. He was an absolute demon all over the ball all the time. And I'll be damned, Alex Okafor, who's been pretty mediocre as a pro, he had a good game too. They just they just really got to the ball in a swarm and the interior held up very well. I that's my hot take. Yeah. And I'd like to know who that nose tackle is they have too. He's like a big Simone looking guy with long hair. Uh AJ Klein had some really had two like really big run tackles also in this game. And that uh that safety they have long hair like 
His name starts with a P. I'm sorry if, I, if I'm blanking on it. Pizzanzi or something. He just reminds oh. me of Furia from The Sopranos, and he had uh, a few good run places well, too, in this one. Alex Anzalone? Yeah, Anzalone. He's, he's definitely a character from The Sopranos. Yeah, uh, and the, uh, I'm pretty sure Zonyamata is the guy that you're thinking of. No, it's not. No, no, that, he's a defen- uh, that guy's a defensive end, and the guy I'm talking about, he just pretty much plays one technique, and he lines over in front of the center the entire game. And he looked yeah. good, too. Ah, dog it. I, I can't remember his name. Yeah, he had a great game. It was uh, it's, uh, uh, Tomasi Lyle. That sounds like it. He's like a Nick Simone guy. Yeah. I'm going to try to watch the All-22 for both these games, you know, hopefully on Wednesday and Thursday, to get ready for the Super Bowl, you know, so I can waste all my money uh, gambling on it maybe. But uh, also, the recent, one of the things I want to bring up too is that the Saints had – the third best run defense by DVA this year. It went Houston, then Chicago, then the Saints. They had the best run defense by DVA by the for the majority of the season too, especially start off. It was really funny because they were first in run defense DVA and 32nd against the pass for like the first seven weeks or so. And then kind of the pass defense got a little bit better, especially once they started playing PJ Williams a lot less too. And so there was a I read and heard and saw so many things that the Saints run defense was gonna be bad. Because Sheldon uh, Sheldon Rankins wasn't gonna be playing after he tore his Achilles, and so I didn't really agree with that. I haven't watched you know, all twenty-two of the Saints' run defense at all, but it was a simple like one plus one equals two. So this fact and uh, was said over and over and over again. And then we come into this game, it turns out that you know the Saints' run defense was a collective effort, and maybe Rankins probably has more of an impact on the pass rush than the run game, even playing a three technique like he did for the majority of the year too. And so it was, it was interesting that to just see, like, the impact that one player makes uh, for a situation compared to, like, what his actual uh, skill level or compared to what he actually is good at doing after hearing you know, the same thing all week long by, by everybody and everyone. Including me. I was wrong. Yeah, I can't remember anything week to week, so I don't know what you said last week, but, uh, you know, it happens. It, it happens. You get, I get stuff wrong. I'm strong enough to admit it, kids. Yeah. I, I am bummed that Rankins didn't play this game because I do think he would have ha- – actually, that's not true. This The Rams' pass blocking is so good. I don't think he made that much of an impact even in the pass game at all. But I wanted to see him play because he's a first-round pick. This is the first great season he, he's had in his career. And uh, it sucks to see him you know, go out like he did last week. Yeah, no fun. And I love, I love those interior guys too. So I, I especially get – has the sad when guys like that are out. Yeah, interior pass rushing is more important than exterior pass rushing because, again, it's a shorter pass to the quarterback. You can get there quicker. There's less room for them to maneuver, and there's interior pressure. And so whenever you have guys like that, like Rankin, who's more, you know, any sort of interior, that's what makes Aaron Donald so much more valuable than, let's say, like Vaughn Miller is because he's he's an interior rusher, and that sort of rush is a lot more crucial, a lot harder to deal with. Yeah, and um, that's why J.J. Watch should be playing – in the middle, I'm passing downs. Just saying, yeah. just saying, Rack. Same baby. I'm gonna send him a letter. I'm gonna send him a letter and say, "Hey, I love you. I want you to read me a story one day." But also, you really do need to just put laws of three technique on every 39 you have for the rest of your career. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the thing, probably my favorite thing about this game was Jared Goff to start it off because the Rams do that thing where Goff gets the line of scrimmage really quickly. 
and the headset isn't shut off until there's 15 seconds left. And so McVeigh tells him what to do, gives him the audibles, tells him what to look for, and this and that. And it's like Jared Goff, you know, is a is playing pretty much like popcorn football with his father, come running onto the tie shoes before every play, and to make sure he knows exactly what to do. And so his helmet was busted. He didn't know what to do. They were able to, like, tape it, allow him to hear a little bit. They would know how to a little bit more to make things a little bit easier for him, too. But I just found it, like, really lovely just watching Goff struggle without McVeigh being able to tell him what to do the entire game. And, uh, and then they were able to fix his helmet. He was kind of back to playing better. So I, I did enjoy that, that part of it. Man, all the schadenfreude. The schadenfreude comes out with Weston today. You're just mean. You're big baddie. I just thought it was funny, like, that um, uh, uh, McVay said that the Saints crowd couldn't keep it up the entire game. This dude never been to New Orleans. I mean, they keep it up, like, all night, you know? It's just, like, that's just their normal behavior is to be loud 24-7. I, I, that was just silly to say. Yeah. Well, it did seem like they got quieter in the second half because they were so loud to start the game. And so I know it's kind of like if you drink six beers and then you kind of stop drinking for like an hour, you're kind of tired and sleepy. I think it's kind of part of what happened in New Orleans. They weren't able to, to refill the concession lines for too long to keep the exuberance up in the second half. <laughs> I thought they were pretty exuberant. I, I, feel like there was I wouldn't want to play in that. Goodness. Yeah. I think there's a difference in the second half compared to the first half, though. Uh, so Jared Goff in this game, like he made some great throws off play action passes, especially that one to Higby that saved a sack and put them like game like a third and six or whatever uh, on their on their game winning drive too. And other than that, and then like, he threw a lot of quick crossing routes and that uh, drive to come back and tie it uh, as well too at the end of regulation. But what do you think of Goff? Do you think he's really good? Do you think he's a young guy who's in a, a perfect environment for him to succeed? Uh, or do you think he's, like, one of the premier quarterbacks around? No, I definitely don't think he's premier. I mean, so Goff was just quick eyeballing. I think it was sixth in D-U-Y-A-R. I, I will say, first of all, I think he's very much a product of the system. I think McVay helps him be successful because of the system. It's a more, mostly it's a pretty simple system that gets guys open and creates easy looks for him and, and, and wide open receivers. So it's very helpful. Uh he is decent, short and intermediate. He's not somebody you want to throw the ball downfield. He's, he's, I, just, I would say he's a pretty above-average West Coast kind of quarterback, but I don't think he's ever going to be, unless something really clicks, I don't think he's ever going to be like a truly top-five guy. Granted, he was six last year. I get it. I know what I'm, I hear what I'm saying, but I think he is more of a product of the system rather than really being the sixth best quarterback in the NFL. That said, he's still above average. I wouldn't kick him off my team, but I don't think he's got nearly the ceiling that, say, Deshaun Watson has or Baker Mayfield has. I, I don't think he's that in their class. Yeah, and I agree with you, too. I, I don't know. It, his potential is so hard to tell, though, because he makes so many open throws, but can he be the guy that makes the rest of his team better and be the source, you know, control of the offense? He hasn't done that yet. But it's only his third year, and he went from having being like an all-time awful quarterback his rookie year, and he's Jeff Fisher, to being you know a, a top ten quarterback by stats and efficiency the last two seasons. So it's gonna be interesting to see kind of what happens to him as well. And like I was watching, I watched the film from the Rams Cowboys game, and it was eerie how similar McVay's offense was to Kubiak's, except McVay's is Kubiak's offense and Mike Shanahan's offense just taking to the next level. 
with all the jet sweep fakes, the inside zones, the play action, uh, how he seems guys get open is just like it's just super cool, and it's just the next rung in the ladder uh, in the in the offensive progression. And there was like there was two plays I really loved in this game that the Rams you know made that the Rams ran that I could like tell as I watched it. One was a quick throw they, they uh, ran to Brand Cooks where he comes along the formation as like a jet sweep motion. They fix the handoff. He dumps it off. There's and everything else is crossing routes going away from the play. And he's wide open. He gets like 20 yards. I also really love the play action pass they threw to Cooks where he's in the slot. He's lined up against PJ Williams. And what made the Eli Apple great uh, trade so great for New Orleans was that it put PJ Williams on the field a whole lot less. And it was a, an addition by getting a, a mediocre player. But it, put, it pushed him down the depth chart. He was able to scheme to use a, use a bunch by receiver set or stack by receiver set on the outside. And as soon as Goff, you know, comes out of that break, he's B.J. Williams' number turn. It's an easy throw. Puts him on the two-yard line. They score a touchdown. And we're able to get the game within three at that point, too. So I, really, I like those two parts of it. I like how they, they scheme guys open. Uh, they're, they're fun to watch. And it reminds me of those, you know, good old Halcyon days of you know, 2010, uh, back when memes were – you know, bad luck, Brian, and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and I like the way how you described it because, you know, McVay came from Shanahan and Shanahan came from Kubiak and Kubiak came from the elder Shanahan. So you have this entire tree that's working with this whole thing. And I, you really see the influences on the system. And I think what, what McVay has done best of all is, is he has built in so many in addition to just the play action, and, and we all know how successful the Kubiak offense is because of the play action. Kubiak doesn't run a, a run offense or pass offense. He runs a play action offense. And, and what McVeigh has done is he's taken that. And he's also added the extra element of, I'm going to have three receivers ready to block downfield when I throw this little slant to Brandon Cooks type stuff. Yeah, Robert Woods is such a great blocker. I love how you put that too, where it's not a run offense or West Coast offense or a spread offense. It's a play action offense, is what it is. And the Rams led the league in play action passes this year, uh, percentage wise, according to Football Outsiders. You know, a game chart, advanced, super cool game charting data that costs like $100 to have throughout the year. Uh, they ran play action on 38% of their plays, which is the most in football. They averaged 8.3 yards of play. And the Saints were. So off the top of my head, I think they were 22nd against the play action this year. And the play action passing, you know, really hurt them in this game. Especially that one touchdown they ran where the safety you mentioned earlier, I forgot, uh, Pantalone or however you want to call it, Anzalone. 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 Yeah, he gets pulled inside. Uh, he gets pulled inside. Higby's wide open for the touchdown. Just throughout the game, you know, the Rams scores some play action. That's what they've done all year to, against every team they played, where that play action is just you know, diabolical. Yeah, I loved Anzalone's reaction. <laughs> he was like, oh, my God, I got so torched. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He felt so stupid immediately. And everybody else did a pretty good job on that play, brother, guys. It was just Anzalone that was unable to. Yeah. Yeah. Or I almost felt sorry for him, but with that hair, I don't feel sorry for anybody who has that much hair. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's very funny. Uh, <laughs> so is there anything else that, that you want to talk about from this game at all? Nah. Yeah, the only thing I was going to bring up is you know, Michael Thomas had four catches on seven targets for 36 yards. And throughout the game, I saw Keats Tlaib on him. The only time I saw Michael Thomas really get open at all was in the slot, especially up against uh, Marcus Peters. But you know, throughout the game, he was outside and was able to beat Tlaib. And Tlaib being out for the entire year, 
he got back to health and looked really good really quickly. And, uh, and same thing with the Dominican Sue, like he was fine throughout the year for the last two games. He's been spectacular. Also, I think Sue was probably their best defender this game. He was really great on the interior run. He had a sack and a half and a couple, he had a couple quarterback hits and, uh, those two guys just kind of like you have veterans. They kind of hang out all year. Then whenever that postseason actually starts, they're ready for it. Yeah, and he was their best player in the last round too. Yeah, he was. He was. I may have to write something on him. I don't know. We'll see how much how much time I have. I think it, okay. So here would be my suggestion: is Aaron Donald and the the company that he creates with the constant double teams, and then what how Sue takes advantage of that. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. Yeah, let me see what I can do. I don't know. Uh, my my dream is to quit my job, go out to live and die in the desert, but then like be sixty five years old and angry, and then wear a suit every day and coach like a middle school football team and just run the outside zone and just teach them outside zone right, outside zone left, and like or like at some like really small like high school in the middle of nowhere, and then just run play action off of it and then win like one state championship. And then die immediately afterwards, and that's my my that's my perfect life. In a different reality, that's what happens to me. I, I really I can't I can't argue with that. That's that's a hell of a life goal you set for yourself there. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see though. I I got I, I got some I got something cooking the pot. But anyways, uh, the second game in the evening, which was the only other game t- last Sunday, the Chiefs lost the Patriots thirty seven thirty one in overtime. So in this game. The New England Patriots had the ball for 43 minutes and 59 seconds. They ran the ball 48 times through 176 yards and had four touchdowns. Brady threw 46 passes. They ran 94 plays. How much did you love the Pats game plan? Oh, my God. They just if, – if there was, a, like, a term that I could use for this game, for what the, for what the Patriots did is they just pinpricked the Chiefs' defense to death. It was death by a thousand cuts, and it was. I mean, I hate. I did not want to see the Patriots advance. I really wanted to see Mahomes in the Super Bowl, but I mean, you just have to give props where it's due, and it's that. It was a great game plan. They went directly after the Chiefs' weaknesses, and they kept Tom Brady upright, and that was ultimately. I mean, look at these numbers. These numbers aren't pretty. Michelle, twenty-nine for one hundred thirteen. Burkett, twelve for forty-one. James White, six for twenty-three. Those aren't great numbers, but they were moving the ball. They were consistently getting first down. So you can't argue with the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of interested to see what their their run offense DVOA was and what their success rate uh, in this game. Because, like, even though you know, Michelle that me carries for not a ton of yards, he just didn't break anything deep. But they were just constantly just getting four yards on first down, six yards on first down, you know, sitting up in, in short third down situations as well, too. And the Chiefs this year, they were 32nd in run defense DBA. Last year, they were 32nd run defense DBA. If you forgot last year, Derrick Henry won a playoff game on his own against the Chiefs defense. And this defense is pretty much the same as last year's, except instead of uh, Derrick Johnson, the center hobbling around, you had Anthony Hitchens. And I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't know who Anthony Hitchens was really until this game. And he had like 14 tackles, and he has a Bernard McKinney eye black. And he's, like, my new favorite player. I think he's the greatest inside linebacker of all time. Just with, like, all the plays he made coming off double teams to even limit the Patriots' uh, run offense as much as he did. Yeah, Hitchens, if you remember, is, it was with Dallas for several years. So 
I, that's where I remember him from. This is his first year. He came in. I think ultimately, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Ultimately, he was brought in mostly to replace Derek Johnson in their scheme. Yeah, I think that's the idea. And I looked at this pro football reference page today, uh, you know, going through his numbers, because I think he had 14 tackles or something like that. And, yeah, he played in Dallas for four years before he came to Kansas City. Yeah, he played a hell of a game. Yeah, and the weird thing about Kansas City's defense, too, it's like, so they have Reggie Ragland, who's a former second-round pick from Alabama. He's super slow. They have Breland, who they drafted in the second round last year, I believe from Ole Miss, and he's like an edge rusher who ran like a 4-7 or 4-8-40, and he's super slow, too. And, like, I mean, just there is no negative plays at all from them. They had zero pass rush. And one of the things we talked about in the preview for this game was that Justin Houston, D. Ford, and Chris Jones all needed to be great. None of them were. They combined for two tackles, one pass, uh, one pass defense. Chris Jones had pass defense. Justin Houston had two tackles. D. Ford wasn't even the box score at all whatsoever. And so what did New England do specifically in this game to make them non-existent? They just canceled them out. And they didn't cancel them out with double teams either. They canceled them out one-on-one. Trent Brown had a fantastic game on the left side. I'm blanking on the right tackle's name right now, which I should not. I get it. Uh, it's Marcus Cannon. That's it. It, Cannon shut down. And Chris Jones, it looked like they were, they were set on making sure Chris Jones was not overly disruptive. So it, what, I seemed, what I picked up is that he had a lot of double teams on him. And again, I could be correct. I have not been able to see any stats to justify anything that I'm saying. But they shut down the middle, and they just let D. Ford and Justin Houston try to get around the big tackles, and they couldn't do it all game. Yeah, and I know in the, in the game before in Cindy, that was one of the things that D. Ford did a really good job with, was just chasing from the backside. And whenever you run the ball up the middle as quickly as they were, oh, with power plays and that sort of thing, it makes things easier. But I, I, I really hope I have enough time to watch the video on this one too, just to see how their offensive line was as dominant as it was. And uh, this is a good segue about Trent Brown, because one of the things I saw on Texans Twitter was that why didn't the Texans sign Trent Brown, you know? wow, look, he was only signed for this much, that sort of thing. The difference is that the Patriots have an all-time great offensive line coach. They scheme and make everybody better. They put everybody in the perfect situation to succeed in this sort of thing. Even if Houston did go out and sign Trent Brown, he would still be playing an offense that does none of those things. But with an offensive line coach who still has not developed a player, aside from, I guess, like Greg Manx even, and Mike Devlin, everybody they sign is worse in Houston. Everybody who leaves gets better. So, yeah, Maybe Houston should have signed Trent Brown, but I don't think he'd be having the year he had this year uh, if he played in Houston compared, or even like Oakland or wherever, compared to playing in New England, which does such a good job developing players. Yeah, and again, it's, it's a matter of that Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is the best head coach pretty much of all time because he is able and capable to scheme against his opponent. And what that means is he, put his, he puts his players in the best position to win. And by creating mismatches has, wherever he can and neutralizing the opponent's strength. That's what he does, creates mismatches, neutralizes strengths. And that's, that's what they do. That's what makes New England so successful. That and having the best quarterback of all time doesn't hurt. But nobody does a better job about scheming than Belichick. Yeah, yeah, and it's an important thing also. Uh, and I think like, even think about like, all the offensive coordinators who have loved New England, coach been bad. The reason why they've been bad is that they coach Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. It's a lot easier to, it's a lot harder to run offense when you don't have Tom Brady there too. And then also just kind of general, uh, Dante Scaramucci is like an all-time great offensive line coach. The one year he wasn't there was the year against when they lost to Denver in the AFC title game. 
when Brady was hit like 15 times and sacked seven times. And Bob Miller uh, picked off uh, Brady by covering Rob Gronkowski. He pretty much won a Super Bowl on his own. And they brought him back after that game. This offensive line's been excellent ever since. And the Patriots' offensive line's like one of the five best in football, but they don't have like a dominant player at all. They're just five guys. I guess Shaq Mason's probably their best guy, mainly because of how often he pulls. But they don't have like a super talented, like high first round pick, uh, expensive offensive line. These are just a lot of guys that develop really well, they're coached really well, that you know don't make mistakes and those sorts of things. And uh, like it's just entirely different than saying like the Saints who traded for a lot of best on their offensive line, put a lot of talent into it to get the results they've had. The Pages just kind of you know get it done with the coaching and development. I got nothing to add to that. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they only allowed one quarterback hit in this game too against you know a Chiefs team whose strength on uh, on defense was their pass rush as well. And the last thing I want to bring about the Patriots run blocking is Mike Devlin's their fullback. They ran a ton of inside low inside zone lead plays this game. I don't think I've ever seen Mike Devlin miss a block. And last year I read some like dumb film article on the Patriots running backs. And the only thing I really remember about it isn't Rex Burkhead or James Y or Deion Lewis or whatever. It's just Mike Devlin and his CTE so cowboy collar just destroying linebackers. And he had an excellent game this game. And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen him miss a block once his entire career. Well, yeah, he, he you know, I, everybody who listens to podcasts knows how I feel about the fullbacks, but I think he's the exception to the rule because he actually adds value to the team. Yeah, yeah, I I could probably I may even write try to write two film rooms, you know, heading in the Super Bowl, and I think I want to write one Mike Devlin, maybe one of them Tom Kasu. I don't know, just something as as like esoteric as I possibly can. I think writing one on Mike Devlin would be outstanding. I think that would be fantastic. All right, I'll do it then. That's what I'll do. I may do the Sue one, but I'll for sure do the Devlin one. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I got it now. I know I'm going to be doing it. Well, actually, I can. I can't tomorrow. I'm going, I'm going to the Joyce Manor concert tomorrow, so I can't do it tomorrow night. Uh, which, if you live in Texas, go tomorrow night in Dallas, Joyce Manor and Jeff Rosenstock are playing. Wednesday night, if you live in Austin, Joyce Manor and Jeff Rosenstock are playing. And if you're tired of the postmodern sludge we live in, go listen to some loud, fast music. You won't, you won't forget it. You won't miss it. Or you will miss it, don't, and you won't forget it if you don't go. <laughs> um, anyway, so the Patriots, they started this game off with a 15-play, eight-minute and five-second drive that went 80 yards, and they scored. It ended with a 13-play drive that went four minutes and 52 seconds for 75 yards. The first was mainly runs. They had 10 runs, in fact. The second one was mainly throws, nine, in fact. On that second, the game-winning drive, one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen was Tom Brady converting three third and tens in a row <laughs> and then ended with three Rex Burkhead runs to win the game, which is kind of like just cutting somebody open and just digging your fingers in their open wounds and just kind of squishing around in it. And so I like, could have ended in like any more of a, a beautiful way for a Patriots fan. Uh, I, I just like so symbolic and parallel and symmetrical. And I just, I can't get over it. I, it, and you know what the worst part is, at least for me, is as I was watching the game, I, I was just kind of resigned to the fact that that's how Tom Brady was going to do it. He was going to convert three third and tens because that's what Tom Brady does. And that's so stupid to even think that because who else do you think that about? But it was just like he was finding guys open and hitting them and they're moving the ball and moving the chains. And 
that was Tom Brady. What else do you expect him to do in the fourth quarter of a playoff game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, like, they were all just kind of same routes, too. They were all – like, they spread everything out, and they just ran that post route. It's like Elm on the post, Gronk on the post, Hope in the post. I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was some along those lines. It was – I hated it. I it, And it's just – as I was sitting there watching it, I just wasn't even surprised. It's like, yeah, he converted another. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of the overtime rules? Because that's one of the football discussions right now. Well, Should the other team get a chance to score even if they give up a touchdown? Absolutely. I think the overtime NFL overtime rule is stupid. I think they need to adopt the college rule. I don't, I don't want the college rule, but I think in the postseason – they should change it where if you give up a touchdown, you should get a chance to match a touchdown. I wouldn't start with the 50-yard line, the 25-yard line. It just kind of becomes like a mini game almost in like a football video game whenever you do something like that. But I think, that being, I think Patrick Mahomes should get at least one chance to tie because, again, it adds a lot more value to the coin flip. And then, I don't know, he should get a chance to match. I want to see Patrick Mahomes get the ball with a chance to match. And after that, you go into sudden death. I'm okay with that. Just something has to change because just the mere fact that they scored a touchdown meant that the coin flip was the most important factor in overtime. And that's the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, mean, I don't know. They had chances. They had chances to stop it, but they weren't able to. Uh, and also the Chiefs had, you know, really good offensive line this year. Patrick Mahomes, you know, had lots of time to throw. And I guess it wasn't probably as good as it probably was just because of Mahomes and his ability to break tackles in the pocket and get outside wide and make things happen. But still in this game, the Patriots sacked him four times and hit him nine times. Uh, did you see anything specifically New England did to create pressure on Mahomes? They, they got help, especially in the first quarter, really. It seemed like they were focused, super focused on making sure they had the interior pass rush to throw him off. Uh, and if I remember correctly, you're going to say something, go ahead. No, I'm just listening. Oh, okay, that's too bad. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, Duvernay Tardif, Tardif Duvernay, oh my God, he d- did not play in the game because he's been injured and, and out, and I think that hurt them as well. So I, yeah, uh, Josh, I meant Josh Allen. Jeff Allen was the guy who replaced him. Yeah, so there you go. So I think that when you add that to it, I think that created part of the problem. But to me, it was the fact they were getting into. We've already talked about it. That interior pass rush creates a lot more problems than the uh, edge rush does in in many cases, and especially the first two sacks he took. I mean, he took two full Keenums. He took two Keenums plus as his first two sacks, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and that was kind of like it was like whenever you watch Patrick Mahomes in college, those two sacks you're talking about, you're like, yeah, I don't know, this is gonna work in the professional game. And those were you know, two sacks where he's just rolling back and back and back and trying to make something happen on nothing. And you lose, you know, 13 yards, and uh, you're kind of trapped at that point. That's something that you really can't escape out of, no matter how good you are at throwing the ball downfield, those sorts of things. Yeah, and that killed two drives. I mean, just those two sacks killed, fully killed mm-hmm. two drives. They had no chance. And so all of a sudden you're – I can't remember the situation, but I think the second one left them with like a second and 24. Yeah. And you can't be successful running from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw you know they kept showing one of the nice things about the CBS broadcast or the Fox broadcast was they showed a lot of behind views throughout the game too. And I kind of wish we could just be able to watch the behind view for the entire game if we wanted to, because they have the technology, like it's there. The Spire team is there. We can watch the entire game from behind. And I hate when ESPN just switches in the middle of the play behind, like I'm not ready for it. I need to be completely devoted to process it. I can't just be uh it's like whenever you like, think you're drinking, like, 
you know, a glass of water and it's actually vodka in there. You're 19 years old. It's like that. We switch it on you in the middle of it. But I saw like a lot of two-year stunts, like you're mentioning creating two-year pressure. And also, like, I'm disgusted that Kyle Van Noy has gone from unplayable in Detroit as a second-round pick to being like a really competent starter in New England. I'm never going to say he's great because of how much it, how just much it sickens me because he was terrible in Detroit. This gave me a 10 tackles, two sacks, one tackle for a loss and quarterback hit. And both him and Hightower were really good at, uh, at standing on the inside. I know Dietrich, not Dietrich Wise, but uh, Lawrence Guy had a couple of big, uh, a couple of nice plays that you can see from behind you that uh, create interior pressure too. But it seemed like that was the main way that they were doing it, as you mentioned as well. Yeah, and I really like the fact that you mentioned Lawrence Guy because he, for me, Malcolm Brown was more erratic, but Lawrence Guy, man, he was a monster that game. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, and, I would like to see snap numbers because it seemed like he only got about half the snaps too. Yeah, I guess I could pull it up, but I'm not going to. It's bad. It's bad radio because we are going live through the airwaves. You know, right now, this very moment. Um, the other thing that you know, the New England thing is kind of the same cliches that we hear every year. I think that's kind of one of the things that makes them annoying. Where like it's the same thing every time, and you hear the same cliches. And the cliche always is. Well, the Patriots take away, you know, your your most important weapon or your most important this or that. And so we talked about the defense and how they were able to limit all three of their best defensive players. But also Tyree killed this game. One catch on three targets, which was that corner route he ran. They caught for 42 yards. Other than that, nothing. We didn't really use him in the run game at all. There was no sweeps or jet sweeps with him or tosses to him at all. Not really lost screens. They didn't do much at all to get him open. Uh, but, and it seemed like the Patriots blitzed a lot, too when they were only using single high and that sort of thing, and it led to Sammy Watkins having four catches for more than 100 yards, I believe. But did you see anything specifically New England was doing to limit Tyree Kill like they did? Oh, they bracketed him all game. They had a safety above. They had a cornerback below. Um, that's, it, it just completely shut him down. And, that's, and you mentioned it just now as your kind of intro with that question is, where the heck was Tyree Kill running reverses or just doing anything out of the backfield or jet sweep or anything Mm-hmm. He, he's your – I mean, if you think about the NFL today, who is the number one guy who might break a game open the time, every time he touches the ball? And it's Tyree Kill. And he got the ball one time in the game, and he only got targeted three times in the pass game. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You cannot allow you, – if you have to force feed him at some point, you have to do it. You have to get him the ball. And I just felt like that they, that was the Chiefs' real opportunity, especially early on when Mahomes was struggling throwing the ball that you had to get him the uh, Tyreek Hill the ball somehow, some way. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree too. And like, I understand, let's say you're only giving, but you're only giving him three opportunities to make something happen or four opportunities, I should say. And he only wasn't letting anything happening at all. But that's again, like you're saying, it's inexcusable for a guy with his skill and his speed and his ability. And also the first two time, the first time these two teams played, he had 172 re- receiving yards or so. Or maybe even more than that. I don't know. I'm just I'm speaking uh, off my brain at all right now, and it's not a very smart brain. It's a shriveled and dried uh, prune brain, and so I can't remember exactly. But I think he had somewhere between 170 to maybe even 220 receiving yards, and he was the guy, of course, who tied that game, and then New England got the ball back and kicked a field goal to win it uh, in their in their matchup earlier this year too. And so I I found it just like really just flummoxing, perplexing that he only had, you know, four pass attempts this game. Yeah, it's not allowing me to pull it. It was, there's, that's unacceptable. I mean, Andy Reid should have been better than that. And I saw, you know, some people saying, oh, well, you know, we need to, we need to 
take Andy Reid out uh, as the offensive coordinator whenever he's in the playoffs because he just falls apart. But there's a lot that went on. You can't blame it all on Andy Reid. But one thing you can blame on Andy Reid is the fact that Tyreek Hill didn't get the ball enough. Yeah, and I think we were kind of wondering, too, in a close game, if Andy Reid's going to have, like, a really bad gap. And he did, but I think it's been kind of swept under the rug. And so he challenged that one-handed Chris Hogan catch, which, you know, you see it once. It's like, yeah, it's even if they can't turn it over, uh, it doesn't. even if it isn't a catch, there is enough information to be able to turn it over. They lost a the timeout there. And so you have the Chiefs driving. They're, they, kick a, they kick a game-tying field goal to send overtime. But if you have the extra timeout, the Patriots can't cover the end zone like they did. You can throw the ball to the five-yard line or so, call a timeout. Then you have possibly like two or three chances to throw a touchdown pass in that game uh, to actually win it in regulation. And so I know, like, as time goes way out, way over there in the future, nobody's going to think about it. I haven't heard anybody really bring it up during the game at all either. But I think that was an enormous miscalculation. Um, all I need to reach part by challenging that play. And I think it limited – and. Uh, the Chiefs' ability on their on their game tying drive, to, or limit the ability for the Chiefs to turn that uh, last drive of regulation into a game winning drive instead of just having it be a game time drive. Yeah, and I just I, I'm sorry this this distracted me and caught my eye. So Michael Thomas of the Saints is, has directly appealed to the commissioner to uh, <laughs> go to go through Rule 17, Section 2, Article 3, which allows the commissioner. Uh, which allows the commissioner to overturn, overturn or use an extraordinary act. Yeah, overturn an extraordinary act that occurred in a game. So there you go, Matt. That's where this one's going. That's good. I think Sean Payton should be able to, but Michael Thomas can't because, again, the ball's in the air. Go make a play on the ball. Don't go pining to the refs for a pass interference penalty. Go get the ball. Don't do that. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm completely anti-Michael Thomas on this one. Yeah, I think I am too. There. They had multiple chances. You can, yes, yes, that played a role. That that non-call played a role. But hey, if the defense stops the Rams and stops Greg Delay from kicking the field goal, then you win. Mm-hmm. I do wish also Fox had that good from whatever because I think Greg uh, Z. I think that would the kick would be good from seventy-five yards. Like that he rocked that. Oh yeah, my it was gosh. Like, um, he pimped it for sure. It was like Nelson Cruz's. Um, ALCS winning Grand Slam in 2011. Like, that's how much you rocked it. Not a single person listening to this podcast is going to understand your reference because they have better taste than to be a Rangers fan. That's fine. Oh, and also, <laughs> a quick side note as we come to the end of this fine show this evening, I'm not looking forward to the Rangers at all this year. So after football ends, it's just going to be me and books because they're not going to spend any money. The whole market's frozen, and they're opening up this new indoor stadium that's going to be just hell on earth. Completely removes what I love about going to Rangers game, which is the heat and the hot beer and the sweating. And they're not going to spend any money until 2020. So, I don't know. I may just kind of boycott this year. And uh, I haven't watched, like, Josh Hamilton highlights whenever I miss my baseball team. <laughs> and they, and they trade Jerickson pro far, too, which really hurt my feelings also. Yeah, true story. I was one on opening day when they opened up that stadium. I was one of the first people in there to pee. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm very jealous. Um, yeah, I really do love that ballpark. But the cool thing about it too is that you know the walls are super high, so you don't realize you you completely removes you from the fact that you are in a Fiesta Texas parking lot at that very moment. 
it's like you're this magical base, like baseball wonderland. It's like you walked into the, the closet that takes you to Narnia. And then you walk out, it's like, yeah, I'm just in a Fiesta Texas parking lot. But whenever you're in there, you completely forget about that fact. Two stories, the same game. Brady Anderson tried to have me ejected from the game. Hell yeah. Because I was taunting him so badly. <laughs> All right, so uh, this, I have a quick question. So Brady Anderson, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball in N64, he holds the bat like like parallel, like really limp. Like he doesn't care at all. Like he's too cool. And in real life, did he actually hold the baseball bat like that? Or is that just a video game animation? At times, at times he did. He would, he would do that. So, okay. Yeah. Was, I always called it the softball stance because that's, we see that often in softball where they hold the bat kind of parallel and he did it a little bit, but when he started, when he had that 50 home run season, he had, the bat was up. Yeah, just like uh, the needle in his arm as well, too, probably. Yeah, so yeah it, that was, yeah, so that's exactly why Brady Anderson did not like me that day, is, is, is um, the, the steroid jokes were fast and furious and not very kind. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, because I, I don't remember watching him play at all. I just remember playing Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball in, like, 1997 or 96, wherever it was. And uh, whenever you play the Orioles, just Brady Anderson just holding that bat parallel. And I've, I've always wondered if it was a real thing or not. But thank you for reminding me. Sure. It's like one of the great mysteries of my childhood, uh, remember. Yeah. Now if only I can get to the rest of it, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so I know it's only one day after the games were over. But and like this answer is probably going to change two weeks from now, a month from now, five years from now, 15 years from now whenever the last breaths are leaving your body from now. Uh, but what do you think is going to be your lasting memory from this, like, really kind of instant classic, spectacular football game? Are you talking about the Chiefs and Patriots? Chief, or are you talking yeah, about the Chiefs-Patriots game. <clears throat> What's going to stick with me is going to be Tom Brady on that, uh, the drive where he converted all those third and tens. That's really going to be what sticks with me because it was just so utterly ridiculous but so utterly expected at the same time. And it's just like, yeah, that's Tom Brady. You know, he's, he's the best. And you just can't, at this point, you can't make a rational argument that he's not the best quarterback of all time. And it was yeah. just a perfect Tom Brady drive. Yeah, we screw up the first couple, but we'll convert this third down. Like, it's, it's, like it's a, like a nothing burner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, thing I'll always remember, I feel like, I'll always, the thing I think I'll always remember about this game is the punt where – Julian Edelman is the punt returner. It bounces. He doesn't want it to roll all the way to the end zone. So he goes to scoop it, and it looks like it goes off his arm. The Chiefs recover. It's right then and there. And instead, it, like, somehow doesn't touch his thumb. It comes over his right shoulder, doesn't touch his shoulder either, and the Patriots get to keep the ball. And, like, whatever happened, Bob's like, I can't believe that happened. Like, he made a mistake. And, like, he was insistent right away that he didn't touch it. Look at the camera. You're like, I don't think he, t- he touched it. But I don't feel like we're not seeing enough to be able to overturn it. The review lasted, like, 15 minutes for this game, too. And it also reminded me entirely of the Super Bowl when they beat Atlanta, where he had that catch where he caught the ball, like, two millimeters off the ground. And in the same way, it's like the Patriots are just so much smarter and they practice so much better. And they're so much better than you are. And they're so perfect. That it feels like... It was a skillful play, not a luck of a bouncy ball that's not shaped like a circle. It seemed like Elman like knew he didn't touch it, knew he wasn't going to touch it, and uh, somehow didn't touch it. I, 
I still think it hit his left thumb. I think they were looking at the wrong thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I wish he did. I really do. I wish that he did too. He did not act like. I mean, that's really hard to do. Like, if you if he would have touched it, his I think his reaction clearly would have been different. I don't think that's something like he can. That's going to be such a knee jerk reaction, though, that you're not going to be able to go. Oh yeah, cool. I didn't do that. No, he's going yeah, he to turn around and start Never yeah, at all. Just walk to the sideline. So I don't. I, I don't know. Either he's a genius and like a great actor, or he's a genius and knew he didn't touch the ball and like got that close to it without touching it, or he touched it and the Patriots just get away with anything. Regardless, I think it's pretty symptomatic. However, you want to craft the craft what uh, what you're in your know, decision on it. I think it sums up the Patriots pretty well. Pretty well. They they. You know, you, I'm a long, long been a believer that you create your own luck, and that was luck. And I just, fate, destiny, karma, screw the Patriots. God, I'm tired of seeing them on the Super Bowl. I wanted the Chiefs in there so badly. <laughs> yeah, I like they say, uh, luck is where skill meets opportunity or something like that. Um, the last thing I wanted to bring up to you before in the show is I, because we alluded to this earlier with the Drew Brees talk, you know, he looked terrible in this game, looked terrible this postseason. Tom Brady looked bad throughout the regular season, falling down, not taking hits, not putting a lot of mustard on the ball, uh, looking a lot like Drew Brees did at times in the regular season. And so I, a very dumb man, thought, yeah, the Patriots, this is kind of, this is the beginning of the end. This is the worst Patriots team since 2007. Brady's thrown, I think, 14 receptions this year. Uh, this is how this is what it looks like whenever it's the end is here. But now it really looks pretty obvious that the Patriots are just in incubation throughout the regular season. They saw their division was gonna be bad. They felt like all we needed, all we we need a one seed. Uh, you know, we need the ones. We're trying to get the one seed, but let's do it in the easiest way possible. If Robert Kelsey doesn't fall against the Dolphins, they have the one seed instead of the two seed. But they still have that first round bye. They still had a home playoff game against the Chargers. And now here we are in the postseason. Uh, the big red moon's out. Tom Brady turns into a werewolf, uh, and is completely just like looking even better than he ha- looking better than he has all year. Looking like he's like 27 years old with the arm strength and his ability to throw the ball downfield a little bit, and like his accuracy is absurd, especially on those third and ten conversions too. And so I, I can't get over it. Like I, I, I had duped. I talked myself into it being just like this is it. But it's not it. It's never going to be it. They're never going to die. Brady's unbelievable. And it just turns out they're just kind of just trying to get through the regular season, like how kind of the Golden State Warriors are right now as well, too. Yeah, and here's perspective on this. As I you know, continue my research, Tom Brady has put up one, two, three, four, five, five of the five out of the top 13 best seasons by passing DVOA. In order, 2007, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2009. So when you see Tom Brady only put up the fourth best in the league at 32.9%, it's kind of, you kind of want to go, yeah. And he, I said this like two years ago about him when he started off the season badly. And earlier when we played on this year, he did not look good. And then he just, it's like a light switch for him. He just flipped it on. But a part of, a lot of this is also, you know, he's going to be calm and cool because he's been there, done that. And he's got to have Bill Belichick helping him scheme. And he's got Rob Gronkowski, who's just who's an, a guy you still can't cover. The guy could be like 85 years old and nobody would be able to cover him. 
Yeah, and even he like came out of nowhere too after not being used a whole lot in the regular season. And it was super funny also watching Eric Berry covering one versus one man coverage because it was just week one, 2017, all over again. Like it was the same like, game plan they ran two years ago with an Eric Berry that you know, tore his Achilles, that broke his foot, that has like club foot, whatever you want to call it, hasn't played all this year, and that's the strategy they went with. And that was kind of unbelievable on the Chiefs in this well too. That was not a well-thought-out strategy. I, I just don't know what else to say about that because it was embarrassing for Eric Berry. I mean, he's a, he should be a good football player. He's gone through so much, and he looked yeah. like he looked terrible. He looked like he walked off the set of The Walking Dead, yeah. like his beard and everything like that. Uh, but, yeah, and I guess, you know, the Patriots are here again. They keep getting away with it. Nothing's ever going to change. Uh, and maybe one day it will, but now it's not that time. So, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Uh, there was, and I forgot what it was, so never mind. Yeah, well, maybe we can talk about it next week whenever we review that 2019 Pro Bowl. That sounds great. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait for that show. <laughs> yeah, well, that's never going to happen. But anyways, <laughs> thank you for listening by who's listening uh, right now. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody about the show. Uh, I think we're only going to have probably – Maybe two more episodes, three, I think three more episodes until we kind of go dark. Or, no, I would say probably four episodes until we go dark for a little bit uh, so I can read a book again and you know, go for a walk and those sorts of things uh, as we head into the offseason this year. So I think what we'll do is we'll do a Super Bowl preview next week, a Super Bowl review. We'll do a Texans season review, probably general NFL season review slash awards, a Texans free agency preview or offseason preview. And then we'll kind of do shows intermittently from there. But it's still five, five, you know, probably like eight hours of content and five episodes. So if you if you do like the show, tell everybody that you love and care about, even those that you don't. Uh, but anyways, my name is Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bell Red Radio. And thank you for being on site, BFD. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. I keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations. Bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Podcast. It's not Voltron.